Well, well, we're continuing our, our series in Galatians, and uh, I think the passage is up there. We're looking at life in the Spirit. Uh, for those of you who are maybe here for the first time, we've been doing a series uh, in Galatians, and we're almost near the end now. But if you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and it's verses 13 through to 26. And if you've got one of our wonderful, Chris, our Bible monitor... If you've got one of these Bibles, you'll find it on page 1172. So it's Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through to 26. And just as it's titled there on the board, it's Life and the Spirit. Getting old, man. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. Anyway, let's read. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Amen. Amen. Well, again, just to, as a, a brief synopsis of the situation in Galatia, um, this was one of Paul's very first Christian communities that established. And uh, he's since left, but following him, as always seems to follow Paul, a, a group who are more interested in salvation by works. And they've come in and they've started distorting the gospel that Paul had previously preached, preached, not peached, preached, <laughs> to the extent that they begin to wonder, well, was faith in Christ enough? Have I got to be taking on the, the requirements of the law, circumcision and festivals and ceremonies and such like? So they're beginning to waver and beginning to doubt and some of them perhaps even considering circumcision. <laughs> But that's the extent of it. So Paul has got wind of that, and he's written back to them in his letter to Galatians. 
And for the most part, Paul has been pressing again and again and again, you're not under law, you're not under law. Stop, stop what you're doing, stop. And here, he's been emphasizing, you're free. But then it raises the question for us, and as, as it did for them at the time, well, what does this freedom look like then? Or more on to the case, what does it mean to be free in Christ? And hence, our first title, freedom, in a Christian sense, means to be a slave to Christ. You know, when we talk about freedom these days, you know, in our culture, we tend to think of freedom in the sense of um, liberty. You know, we have liberty to do as we please, you know. But depending on, as I say, your understanding of freedom, you can have very two different understandings, but still claiming the same thing. But what does it mean? What, what is Paul talking about in freedom? Well, as I said, when we think of our, our, our current culture, you know, freedom is often talked about, as I said, liberty. You know, I, I, we live in a free society. We have freedom to think, to speak, and act to a certain degree as we wish. We can mock the establishment, the, the government, without fear of recrimination or imprisonment. We can flaunt social norms. In fact, it's even encouraged to a degree to be controversial, celebrated even. We have freedom to to offend, if we like, to agitate other people. And I might go as far even to say, if it's entertaining, well, you can pretty much do as you like. As long as it doesn't infringe on my freedom. I thought something was going to fall in my head there. <laughs> I think I'm saying the right things, Lord. <laughs> but is that the freedom that Paul wants to see established in these Galatians? Is that what Paul is trying to remind them of? A former lifestyle even? I don't think it is. Because you see, our current culture is never really any different from the culture that has ever always existed. Paul spoke about earlier about this present age. This present age has always continued. It has always been the same. We are merely living in a continuation of it. And it's the same culture that the gospel of Christ collided with again and again, and it still collides with today. Seems to be back on it. Yeah, there we are. We're back. We're back. So as long as your freedom doesn't impinge on my freedom, you can pretty well do as you like. But as I was saying, is that the freedom that Paul wants to see established in, the, in these Galatians? I don't think it is. As I said, 
The culture then is not really any different from the culture we live in today. And the gospel is forever colliding with the uh, culture because, in a sense, the gospel is countercultural. Now, these Galatians were, promo- were being promoted uh, by these Judaizers uh, a route of freedom. But it was really not freedom at all. It was coming under the, the burden of a whole lot of uh, rules and regulations. But in the danger that it's possibly it could be happening is that in Paul's emphasis on leave that behind, is that they're going to then, in a, almost in a reaction, to flip over to the other side, where they give themselves over to free abandon. You know, as if a free-for-all was like the legitimate uh, expression of freedom in Christ, but it's not. But that was often the charge that was laid against Paul by his opponents, by his religious opponents, that he was promoting free license to indulge in the flesh. But it couldn't have been any further from the truth. It would be like, what they were accusing Paul of would be like somebody coming up to us and ripping the Bible out of our hands and throwing it in a bin and saying, well, you don't need that anymore. You're free. You can do whatever you like. Because you've got to remember that at the time of Paul's writing, the only recorded scripture was the Old Testament Torah, the law. And though it wasn't all law, it was the main characteristic of the Old Testament. So if Paul's saying, I don't need this anymore, then what kind of lifestyle am I being asked to lead? If I don't need that, then, then, then Paul, can I, does that mean that I can do this? <laughs> do you know? Now for us, with the, the benefit of hindsight, and the rest of Scripture in the New Testament, we know that, that that's foolishness. We have to remember this was all they had at the time. If the Mosaic Law was a predominant feature, and Paul was saying, listen guys, you don't have to do all these things, then what did it mean? But as I said, that would be to expose a superficial and an ignorant appreciation of the Word of God. And I have to remember, what did Jesus say himself? He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You know, Jesus indeed fulfilled the law in a way that none of us could. But its moral implications, its ethics, its principles should still be reflected in us. And what did Paul himself write to his young apprentice, Timothy? He wrote, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In that sense, training is only purposeful if it has an end goal. You know, when I think of training, I think of perhaps like of an athlete or a technician or a doctor or, or a soldier even. Likewise, training in righteousness is only purposeful for those who have been declared righteous. You know, I could learn to use a firearm, but I think George might have some words with me (laughs) if I did. You know, in a sense, it wouldn't profit me to do such a thing. It would be a redundant hobby and possibly an illegal one as well. So it's not purposeful to me towards fulfilling what I've been called to be. Therefore, the Word of God is God-breathed. And it's useful towards training us who are in Christ, towards exercising what we've been called to be. I am in Christ. Therefore, I'm declared righteous before the God the Father. 
And through the indwelling presence of the Spirit that has now been given to us, I will now begin to exercise a life lived in the Spirit. So the freedom that's been granted me is in fact a freedom from sin, from the way of the world, from the dominion of the flesh. And it's not to conform, to be free from the conformity to the negative kind of prevalent attitudes and principles and opinions of the present age we live in. I've been set free from that. But I've also been set free from a regimented, ceremonial, symbolic acts of religious tradition. But here's the thing, though. Until I have been set free, until I have the life of Christ in me, I'm the world's property. Everything in my life is controlled and conditioned by the desires and the wants of the flesh. It doesn't matter how cultured or seemingly altruistic or even polite or discreet they may be. Whilst I am in the world, whilst I belong to the world, everything I do, I will do out of a desire to satisfy the flesh. And herein lies the danger of a salvation based on works as well. That if only if I do this little ceremony or this thing ceremonially again and again and again, that it will legitimize a rotten core. It condones a heart that is wicked. It condones a secret life of sin. And it brings the charge of hypocrisy. And it was the same charge that Jesus brought to the Pharisees. You know, we have to remember that by the time of Jesus, the, the great moral principles of the law, of the Mosaic law, of the, the Ten Commandments that had been given to Moses, they'd been turned into some 615 different rules. And people thought that by living these, by obeying these, by doing these things, they were living holy lives. But Jesus disagreed. He said people found enough loopholes to be all the rules and still live wicked and greedy lives. Read, let's read what Jesus said to them. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guide, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean out the outside of a cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy, and wickedness. And if that wasn't enough, he goes on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the day of our ancestors, we have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you're descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How's that for an encouraging word? But it's a danger that we can all so easily fall into. To give the appearance of righteousness, but inside to be dead men. Unclean, driven by selfishness, pride, vanity, and every other vice that raises ourselves above before God. So Jesus did not call us to live a life set adrift on the wants and the desires of satisfying our flesh. But nor did he live us to call a life of hypocrisy, given the appearance of a righteousness, but really no different 
from the carnal and worldly person on the inside. So here is my next point. To be a slave to Christ, then, is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, to be filled with the Spirit of God. To be free, then, is to have the Spirit. And how does the Spirit reveal Himself? He reveals Himself as one who is humble and serves out of love. You know, when you consider even the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you notice that when the Spirit came, He did not come to draw attention to Himself, to seek praise for Himself, but to glorify the Father and the Son. It's not that he lacks anything in himself because he is fully God as much as the Father and the Son. And it's not because he has like a, a menial mentality. He does what he does out of love and devotion to the Father and to the Son. It's love that compels the Spirit. Love for the Father and the Son that compels him. Therefore, if we have the Spirit of Christ, we should then be shown forth the life of the Spirit. And in that is to express that same service, to love and to serve one another in love. And that's why Paul repeats, the, uh, in one sense, half of the golden rule that Jesus used to summarize the, the whole of the law. And then it's in my third point. To be filled with the Spirit of Christ then is to rightly love God and rightly love others. We read it in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus responded to a question by one of the teachers of the law. He said to him, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus responded with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here Paul draws us back to what Jesus said himself. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. You know, it's, it's a simple equation. If we rightly love God, we will therefore rightly love other people. It's a simple. One leads to the other. They're inseparable. In rightly loving God, we will rightly love our fellow neighbor person, human being, because if we're in relationship with God, we're being therefore transformed into the likeness of his image. And that character will impact upon us and impact upon other people. Because remember, if all the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord, then our relationship to those things should be changed. Because God is not an idol. He doesn't sit in our mantelpiece or next to our bedside table expecting a little bit of praise in the morning and then the rest of our life is devoid from him. Everything, all the earth and everything it belongs to the Lord. If we truly believe that God created every human being in his image, then it's only right then that we should esteem everybody as well. Extending the same measure of grace, respect, dignity, and forgiveness that God has extended to us. And even more so to one another. Because we are sanctified by the indwelling presence of the Spirit. They are and we are God's children. So we should be careful to esteem and to honor one another at all times and in all situations. You know, Jesus gave a, a, drew upon this in the, in the parable of the, the unforgiving servant. You know how he told the story of the king who was drawing, looking at his accounts and wanted to settle them. And he discovered that there was a servant who owed him something. It was a ridiculous amount of money. Un, unpayable. 
It was huge. It was thousands upon thousands. And he was brought before the king in fear and trembling. But the king cancelled his debt and says, you're free to go. It's gone. What should have been his response? What was his expected response from the king? Immediately after leaving that, he went out and found a fellow servant who owed him just a few pounds. And he took him by the neck and throttled him. Well, he threatened to throttle him and had him thrown in jail. But when the king heard of this, what was his response? He called him back in. And he was so angered and disgusted by it that he had him thrown in jail. You know, if we ever imagine to think that our relationship with God is just a personal thing, it has nothing relation to anybody else, then we're very wrong. How we relate to other people has everything to do with God. You know, I read this little quote, and I quite liked it. It says, the person who looks up to God rarely looks down on people. It's nice, that, isn't it? It's one of those little things you think, I'll try and remember that. The person who looks up to God rarely looks down and other people. You know, the same spirit that was work in Jesus is at work in us. You know, Jesus said he could only do what he saw his Father in heaven doing. So what was he doing? He was relating to other people. He was revealing the kingdom of God, ushering it in through his life, through his commitment to his God and Father. And how did that impact upon others? They were healed. They were restored. They heard the good news. They, they received the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, in his relationship with his disciples, he loved his disciples. He got down on his knees when, when they wouldn't. He humbled himself when they wouldn't. He washed their feet when they waited and looked for a servant, a slave, to do it. And what of those who, who nailed him to the cross? Did he curse them? Did he speak obscenities about them? He asked his father to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. And think these were his, supposed to be his enemies. You know, sometimes our enemies get a better deal than our friends do. Sometimes we get upset about so silly, trivial things and we use them as barbs to wound one another. Whereas the Spirit of God in that. As Paul said, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will destroy each other. That's to give free reign to the flesh. To strive to get one over on one another. To prove a point. To add insult to injury. You know, I'm reminded as well of what Jesus said to Peter on the night of his arrest. Put away your sword. Do you remember that night? And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? You see, Peter thought he was acting out of good. But he was really acting out of the flesh. And the history of the church as an institution, reflects a similar story. It's a checkered history of opposing acts, acts by, oppos by worldly men acting out of the flesh and godly men acting out of the spirit. And if you would trace your finger down the history of the church to look at them, they wouldn't be difficult to distinguish. And so it continues today in ourselves. 
There is a war being waged within us constantly, whereby we have to make a choice of whether to listen to the Spirit or listen to self. We have been set free by Christ, but there is nothing to stop us giving ourselves back into slavery. But who would want to do that? My fourth point is that rightly loving God means rightly loving others equals loving and in step with the Spirit. You know, when we have the Spirit of God, we have a new unction, a thirst, and a desire for the things of God to be revealed in us. When we have the Spirit of God, we are being transformed. You know, if our lives were measured in a line graph, you know, one of those things where you see the table and the, the, the line, uh, you can see I'm a statistician, a statistician, is that what you call it? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, but you get the idea. You know, if you could trace your Christian walk, you mean our physical powers diminish. That's expected, and they will diminish. But our spiritual life, in a sense, should be gradually increasing. There will be peaks and troughs, but there should be an upward movement towards God. But towards the end of my life, on my Christian walk, or when I'm approaching glory, I pray and I hope, I should see that I'm not the same person I am then as I was when I started. There should be a movement towards the likeness of Christ, an ever-increasing likeness of Christ in my life. And then, the then there's, there's been a stumbling block somewhere. But as I said, there is a war. The old self, the man of the flesh, is in its death throes. But it will at times try to raise to the surface. And what did Paul write? So I say, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. As I said, in this life we wrestle with our old self, the person of the flesh. Though it may be diminishing, it might be in its death throes. Yet it will still look for real opportunities to reassert its old authority. If you live by the Spirit, he will remain underfoot. And the spiritual life will grow and it will blossom. They are poles apart. Paul paints a very brief descriptor of some of these things through verses 19 to 29. In some sense, they might seem obvious. But there is nothing more deceitful than the human heart. And the old self will look for backdoor entries to try and exert, reassert its influence in our lives. And one of the sneaky ways to do it is to try and justify the former way of life. Maybe a new twist on theology. Maybe a radical interpretation of scripture. Even in popular culture. If popular culture says, if the majority say it's okay, well then, yeah, maybe it is. We don't look to God anymore. We look to the culture around us to justify us. But there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old heresies that keep coming back, just dressed in different language. Because it's mentioned in, it's recognized in the book of Revelation. I think it was in Nicolaitans. It mentioned in the book of Revelation. And they had a reputation for distorting the gospel. 
They propagated the idea that you can be saved by grace, but you're free to indulge the flesh. Jesus condemned it then, and he still condemns it today. And Paul is no different. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 19, he wrote, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, just as a, a wee curiosity, a wee interesting fact, when he mentions witchcraft there, the actual uh, true um, words that used there was and those that used drugs. Strange that, isn't it? Some of you might be thinking, oh, my 20 club king size. <laughs> what it, why it uses the word witchcraft is because drugs were often used in witchcraft to create an ecstatic, um, a high so they can indulge in whatever they did. We cannot serve two masters. It's either the flesh or the spirit. There's no gray areas. And whichever one that we sow into will show itself by its fruit. You know, that's things that Paul mentioned. It's a rotten harvest, isn't it? If you could taste the results of the things that were sown in the flesh before they were committed, you know, we would never go there. The bitterness of them would cause us to convulse at even the thought of it. But the flesh quickly forgets. You know, and it's like in Proverbs 26, 11, it says, a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. It's that that we've been rescued from, from darkness to light, from death to life. The fruits of the flesh are poisonous. You know, I was thinking, do I have an illustration of this? I was thinking, well, actually, it's funny when you're looking for an illustration and one pops up when you least expect it. You know, this morning, just before we left, I found myself very annoyed. <laughs> I was very annoyed. And it was such a silly thing. But I felt in me such a kind of frustration and annoyance to everyone. Because in one sense, there wasn't one particular person to blame. I have one of these fancy Nespresso machines, you see. And the milk frother jug thing. And so I went and make myself a lovely cup of coffee, you see, with frothy milk. And I poured the milk and I went, the bit's gone. Who's been touching this? <laughs> and I felt it well up in me, a real annoyance. And I'm like, who, who touched this? <laughs> Forgive me, but I was looking at Kez. Kezia, did you? <laughs> but you see, I could have let myself let go and rant and rave, and I could have completely ruined the whole atmosphere of the house that morning, accusing, saying, was it you? Was it you? And I had to rein myself in. And it was such silly things that it can start, that the mole can begin, but if we leave it unchecked, it will grow. And it can start with silly little things. You know, and I love that verse, and it's in the Song of Solomon's where he writes, catch the little foxes. Catch the little foxes. Don't let them ruin the vineyard. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely verse, and I've always tried to remember it. And it's those situations I need to remember it. Because little things can develop into big things if you let them run riot. It's such a small thing. But if you let the, 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 the angst of the thing grow in you, it will creep 
and infect other areas. That's why we so much need to live the life in the Spirit. Bring it back to God. Bring it back to Christ. God, this is not you. This is not you, Jesus. This is the old me. I need to put it aside. That's what we've been rescued from. And it's by the grace of God. And remember, it's the Spirit who is in us that is greater than he that is in the world. You know, once we were subject to the whims and the desires of the flesh, but in Christ, those things have been dethroned. They do not hold sway or influence over us anymore. In a sense, my last point, which I didn't uh, draw up, but the last thing is living life in step with the Spirit it brings us back to freedom. It's almost like a full orbit, you see. And left to our own devices, we could never escape a selfish orbit. Usually our universes revolve around ourselves. The only way to break out of that orbit and orbit Christ is by his grace. You know, when Jesus said, you know, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's true. And it may be this morning that some of you are wrestling. And maybe you think, I'm failing. I'm wrestling with my current life, my former life. And I feel like I'm losing. What did Jesus say? Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Call upon the Spirit. Lord, exercise your life in me. Paul exhorts us. Crucify the flesh. It is no longer I who live, but Christ live in me. And maybe that isn't a prayer for us, for some of us here this morning. Lord, live in me. Help me cast off the old life. Let's die.